Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a surprise ruling by Judge Reinhardt over the unsealing of the affidavit the DOJ prepared to justify the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Even though the judge has received death threats from Trump supporters, he appears to have given Trump some ability, although it is likely to be heavily redacted, to find out about the case against him and who the witnesses giving damaging testimony are. Joining us is Marcy Wheeler, an independent journalist who writes about national security and civil liberties at emptywheel.net and is a contributor to Motherboard, The New Republic, Al Jazeera and others. She's the author of Anatomy of Deceit, a primer for the CIA leak investigation, and she serves on the advisory board of the House Fourth Amendment Caucus, is a senior fellow at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security, and was declared an Internet human rights hero by Access Now. We'll discuss her latest articles at EmptyWheel.net, the ABCs and provisions E, F, and G of the Espionage Act, and Rule of Law, DOJ obtained Trump's privilege waived documents in May. Then we'll examine the ramifications of the Trump Organization's CFO, Alan Weisselberg's guilty plea in a New York tax fraud case today on 15 counts, and speak with Scott Horton, a professor of Columbia Law School, who is a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers, and we will discuss what is happening with the Manhattan DA's office since the new DA, Alvin Bragg, dropped their investigation against Trump, but successfully prosecuted Weisselberg. Then finally, we will look into the outrageous threats to IRS personnel coming from GOP Senators Cruz and Grassley, who are characterizing new investments in auditing and computers in the Inflation Reduction Act, as a shadow army of 87,000 federal agents with AR-15s ready to shoot small business people. And joining us is Casey Michelle, a journalist whose writings on offshoring, kleptocracy and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic and Politico magazines, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council of the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. The author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, we will discuss his article at CNN, First Republicans Attack the FBI, Look Who They're Coming For Now. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Marcy Wheeler, an independent journalist who writes about national security and civil liberties at emptywheel.net 
and is a contributor to Motherboard, The New Republic, Al Jazeera, among others. She's the author of Anatomy of Deceit, a primer on the CIA leak investigation, and serves on the advisory committee of the House Fourth Amendment Caucus, and is a senior fellow at George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security, and was declared an Internet Human Rights Hero by Access Now. Her latest articles at EmptyWheel.net are the ABCs and provisions E, F, and G of the Espionage Act and Rule of Law, DOJ's obtained Trump's privileged wave documents in May. Welcome to Background Briefing, Marcy Wheeler. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And as we speak, uh, you're in Ireland where it's getting late and as of about 2.30 Eastern Time, the proceedings in the federal courthouse in Palm Beach, Florida, with Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt are underway. They've been underway for an hour. The DOJ is represented by Jay Pratt, who's the chief of the Justice Department's counterintelligence and export control section. He also, of course, visited uh, Mar-a-Lago back in June the 3rd with three FBI agents and was told that there were no documents there anymore or those that were there, he asked... On June the 8th, he sent the Trump team an email asking them for stronger locks to be installed on the rooms. And he, of course, is obviously pretty familiar with what's going on. Apparently, the arguments he's made so far is that if you release the affidavit to the public and to the press, it will provide a roadmap for an ongoing investigation. It seems unlikely that uh, Judge Reinhardt, given the arguments that Jay Pratt has made about uh, citing what happened to the FBI recently in the attack on uh, FBI a f- a field office in Cincinnati and on the unmasking of FBI agents by Breitbart. They've been harassed. Judge Reinhardt himself has been receiving death threats because Fox put up his pictures. Judge Reinhardt's a former federal prosecutor. So, Marcy, it seems unlikely that Reinhardt is going to rule in favor of Trump and the media companies, but will rule in favor of the DOJ. What do you think? Well, it looks like um, I'm watching the breaking news from that hearing, and it sounds like he has ordered the government to provide him with a sealed version of what they could live with unsealing um, by a week from today. And so he may be uh, considering releasing more of it than DOJ wants. And this would be in, in a heavily redacted form, right? It would be in heavily redacted form, yeah. Jay Bratt, who is the head of counterintelligence at DOJ, uh, made it clear there's at least a couple of um, Trump associates who have helped with the investigation. It's in its early stage. And as he pointed out, one of the things that Judge Reinhardt has found probable cause to uh, support is that there was evidence of obstruction at Mar-a-Lago. In other words, that Trump has obstructed other functions of the government or other investigations. And so he can't be trusted not to obstruct this investigation if more information is revealed. Well, apparently the DOJ has been in possession of surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago that's been captured over the last 60 days, and that was subpoenaed by the DOJ. And apparently it shows people going in and out of the storage area where these classified documents are kept. So this is a counterintelligence nightmare. 
Right. I mean, it's unclear whether DOJ is interested in in that because it shows that Trump staffers were basically lying to his own lawyer or setting up, you know, a fraud on DOJ or whether some of Trump's associates are given or were being given free access to materials that, that contained highly classified uh, information. Those are the kinds of things we might get snippets of if this gets unsealed next week or, you know, perhaps we'll hear more on, on uh, reporting between now and then. So on June the 3rd, when Jay Pratt went to Mar-a-Lago with the three FBI agents and was told by the Trump attorney who signed a written statement claiming that all the material marked as classified had been returned to the government, was that the AON lawyer? It's unclear. Um, so there's two lawyers. There's there's the OAN lawyer, Christina Bob, who was actually in the courthouse but did not speak today. There's another lawyer, uh, Evan Corcoran, who who Trump actually shares with Steve Bannon. Um, so we don't yet have confirmation who signed the document and whether the person who signed the document actually um, did what they would have needed to do to look at the documents. Um, and And whichever it is, Either they seem like they're in conflict with Trump right now or because Trump lied to them or um, or they're at some risk themselves because of the way these laws work. And then not long after the June 3rd meeting at Mar-a-Lago with the same head of the Justice Department's Counterintelligence and Export Control Division, who's both did the court filings to prevent the unsealing of the affidavit and is now before the judge. Uh, have they wrapped, uh, Marcy? Is the, is the hearing still going on? I believe it's done, yeah. It's I'm done. seeing everyone's out reporting it out. So I, I, I think it's done. And um, as I said, it, this is going to be delayed at least a week and probably a bit longer uh, after the... And, and this is a magistrate judge. So if he rules and DOJ doesn't like the decision, DOJ is going to appeal and the district judge would would review that. So... I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime in the next two weeks. This is going to get closer to the election before we actually see any affidavit. And again, I'm speaking with Marcy Wheeler, an independent journalist who writes about national security and civil liberties at EmptyWheel.net and is a contributor to Motherboard, The New Republic, Al Jazeera, among others. She's the author of Anatomy of Deceit, a primer on the CIA leak investigation and serves on the advisory committee for the House Fourth Amendment Caucus and is a senior fellow at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security and was declared an Internet Human Rights Hero by Access Now. Her latest articles at EmptyWheel.net are the ABCs and provisions E, F, and G of the Espionage Acts and Rule of Law, DOJ obtained Trump's privileged waived documents in May. But it would seem, though, that a judge has already been threatened and Jay Bratt made the uh, case about the jeopardy to the FBI agents uh, because Trump uh, sent the uh, unredacted version of the uh, search warrant to Breitbart News and they published it and Fox has, has published pictures of Judge himself and he's been threatened and he's a former federal prosecutor. I just have a sense that maybe he's going to err on the side of the DOJ as much as he can. One would think, but he also um, may believe that if some of what he approved in in this search warrant, I mean, Bratt also said that there was that there was significant grand jury information in there. Uh, he may want to 
show to the public that the case DOJ made to him was quite compelling. And he may believe that if DOJ shares some of what they shared with him, all of the, I mean, then people won't be so quick to side with Trump. We don't know. We don't know what he saw. We know that the crimes that they're investigating are very serious. And obviously it would take a very high bar to even search the president's mansion. So um, he may think that that the public interest is so uh, significant that it does make sense to share some of it. So the grand jury you're referring to, one is the DOJ grand jury that's looking into the insurrection. No. Well, as far as we, the thing people should understand is grand juries often deal with more than one issue. Given how major and how sensitive this is, um, it may have its own dedicated grand jury. There are at least five others that are looking at things January 6th or Trump related in D.C. Whether or not it's a dedicated grand jury or one that is also looking at some some related issues, um, it is understood to be in D.C., and Hirschman, one of the White House lawyers, I think he testified yesterday, did he not? I mistakenly said on the program yesterday that he was, it was about the, the Atlanta case, but I believe he was testifying yesterday. Is, has Pat Philbin and Cipollone already testified to the, to the DOJ grand jury in D.C.? Um, it's not clear with regards to January 6th testimony, but the New York Times over the weekend um, confirmed the news that both of them have been inter- interviewed by the FBI in this inquiry. And so what we're going to see from here on out is um, some witnesses are, are going to be friendly witnesses in some part of the investigation, maybe more exposed in others. And it's all going to get rather confusing, I think. And why do you think Philbin is key? Well, Philbin played a key role both while he was still at the White House um, for years, frankly, but in in the last month and a half or the the last month, basically, the White House had lost what's called their staff secretary, and he reportedly picked up some of that. So he was trying to manage the documents towards the at that in that very chaotic last month of of the Trump administration. He was the deputy White House counsel before that, so he was involved in some key decisions. And even in, he was one of Trump's first impeachment defense attorneys. So he did all of that. And then after he left the White House, after Trump left the White House, he, for some months, uh, attempted to cajole Trump into returning the documents at issue now and was unsuccessful. He was designated by Trump on one of his last days in office, one of his representatives with the archives. And so in that role, his third legal role with Trump, or maybe his fourth, he was over a period of months trying to convince Trump that he had a legal obligation to return these documents. He did not succeed. Somebody else came in and they, they delivered 15 boxes back earlier this year. Um, but last week they seized another 27 boxes. And so uh, Philbin would be a witness to those negotiations, to those efforts he made earlier last year and earlier this year to get Trump to return those documents. And on June the 19th, uh, Trump named Cash Patel and John Solomon as his representatives for the access to presidential rec- records of my administration. So what do you think was going on in the White House then in that sort of interregnum between the November election and the January 
21 inauguration of uh, Biden. I mean, well, was Philbin trying to stop Cash Patel and John Solomon? I mean, it looks as if Trump was squirreling away stuff all along. Apparently he had a secret stash in his safe that the FBI broke into. But what's your sense then, Marcy, since you follow this stuff so closely, of how Trump gathered that material? Who helped him? How did he... What was he looking for? And I guess the biggest question of all is why did he do it in the first place? I don't think we know that, though I do think Pat Philbin would have insight on that because he would know uh, what 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 basis Trump was giving for refusing. The Cash Patel, John Solomon thread is slightly different. Um, they're sort of in charge for Trump of trying to pretend there was no merit to the Russian investigation. And they've been doing it um, in various ways, full time, not full time. They've been doing it for war five years now. And uh, he literally, on the last day in office, Mark Meadows uh, tried to send all of these Russian-related materials back to DOJ to declassify, and it didn't happen. There's some understanding that uh, perhaps Pat Philbin intervened. Basically, what Trump wanted to do was expose the identities of informants uh, and other people who had really just been witnesses in the investigation, the early investigation against him, and also probably sources and methods that, that are targeted at Russia. And that is what we understand Kash Patel and John Solomon have been focused on. But as you said, um, they were made, it's a slightly different role. They were made, they were given access to what Trump described as his presidential records, not to the, not to his records at the archives. And I, you know, that, that that may be reason why um, DOJ wanted to see who was coming in and out of the archives because Cash Patel was speaking publicly as if he knew personally what was in the documents that were returned earlier this year. And Trump tweeted out today that he wants to release the documents on Crossfire Hurricane, the earlier. In yeah, I mean, he keeps saying this. You know, he he basically it's the same thing that he's trying to do with his this this current investigation. He's trying to release the identities of anybody who cooperates with the government against him. And what we've seen, as you mentioned earlier, is that uh, people themselves and people's children's are going to be attacked uh, because that's how Trump has always managed to avoid any kind of accountability. So just in the last few minutes then, Marcy, I wanted to turn to your latest article, DOJ obtained Trump's privileged way of documents in May. And you conclude the article by saying that what I can say with no doubt, though, is that Merrick Garland's DOJ solved one of the most challenging constitutional problems facing an investigation of a former president, and it solved that problem months ago. So what was the problem and what was the solution? The problem is that if you're going to investigate uh, the former president for things that started during the period with, when he was in the White House, you need to find a way to get materials that are uh, covered by executive privilege. Just as an example, we know Mark Meadows was key in Trump's plans for January 6th. He was the chief of staff. Normally, all communications between the White House chief of staff and the president are are treated with executive privilege. Um, but the January 6th committee 
subpoenaed that kind of information and challenged Trump's efforts to prevent them from getting it and fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. And then in May, and this was revealed last uh, last night on by the New York Times, in May, DOJ just got a subpoena and asked the archives for everything that the committee had already asked for. And what's significant about that is that they did it without telling Joe Biden anything about their ongoing investigation. So Garland is uh, definitely investigating people at least close to Trump, but they are, but he's also doing so in such a way as to attempt to, to, to uh, prevent any notion of politicization, any notion that Joe Biden is participating in this investigation at all. So just in closing then, Marcy Wheeler, since you've covered Trump and going back earlier to the live blog, the Scooter Libby trial, how do you see this? I mean, Donald Trump has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his business life and, and his political life, and he's something of a Houdini, uh, having dodged a couple of impeachments. Do you think that this is getting closer to, I know a lot of uh, our listeners would like to see him either dragged out in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket? Well, I think that he's under a lot of legal jeopardy. I mean, um, just today, Alan Weisselberg, his former uh, chief financial officer for Trump Organization, pled guilty, and he's going to testify not against Trump, but against Trump Organization later this year. Uh, and the last two weeks have been one after another of developments like that. Uh, Rudy Giuliani testified before the Georgia grand jury yesterday. Lindsey Graham is trying to get out of testifying all these people are getting subpoenas, this search, uh, ongoing developments in the January 6th investigation. And so there's just a lot going on. And Trump is not, he doesn't have the single tool he used to get, uh, to get out of legal jeopardy while he was president, which was the pardon. And so we'll see what happens. It would be too soon to rule out Trump finding some way out of this, but he's in a much weaker position than he's been in probably ever. Well, Marzi Wheeler, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Marcy Wheeler, who's an independent journalist who writes about national security and civil liberties at emptywheel.net and is a contributor to Motherboard, The New Republic, and Al Jazeera, among others. She's the author of Anatomy of Deceit, a primer on the CIA leak investigation, and she serves on the advisory committee for the House Fourth Amendment Caucus and is a senior fellow at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security and was declared an Internet human rights hero by Access Now. And her latest articles at Empty Wheel are the ABCs and Provisions E, F and G of the Espionage Act and Rule of Law, DOJ obtained Trump's privilege wave documents in May. We're going to take a brief station break and be back examining the ramifications of the Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg's guilty plea in a New York tax fraud case today on 15 Counts.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Horton, who is a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the CFO of the Trump Organization, Alan Weisselberg, entered a guilty plea in New York tax fraud case today. He was sentenced to five months in Rikers and a $2 million fine, and he's to appear again in court on October the 24th, which is pretty close to the election, to testify against the Trump Organization, but apparently not against Trump himself. So what do you make of the guilty plea today? Well, it's definitely a significant development that is, no matter how you cut it, it is not good news for Trump. Uh, But it may well be that the prosecutors did not achieve as much as they hoped to achieve. I mean, I think I think, of course, what they really wanted was to flip him and have him be the key witness who would open the books and explain them and explain and document all the fraud that occurred and provide the testimony that uh, Trump knew and Trump had overseen or directed all of this. Uh, And I think we have to start by saying they did not get that. At least it certainly doesn't appear that they have that. Uh, But most of what we've learned about the guilty plea uh, at this point, other than what actually happened in court, has come from, uh, I believe, from uh, from Wesselberg's lawyers uh, who have been working very, very hard to downplay um, the total scope of what he's committed to do. But the bottom line is, if he pleads guilty to something, he has to be available to testify uh, with respect to the operative facts uh, on that crime to which he pleaded guilty. Um, So we'll see. Well, he pled guilty on 15 counts, so it's hard to believe that all those could be about these off-the-books compensation that he and Trump entered into. And Trump signed some of the, uh, uh, the checks to pay for the tuition of his kids and all these other perks that he got. Yes, and and I think, you know, these statements, he's not going to testify against Trump. I mean, the bottom line is he's the person who knows that Trump approved these things. And, you know, it seems to me very hard that he cannot refuse to answer a question put to him about whether this was discussed with Trump, whether Trump approved it, whether there are documents that prove that and so forth. And moreover, uh, the prosecutors would have already gone over all that with them, and they would know. So what's going on then with the DA there, the new DA, Alvin Bragg? Because he dropped the case that the, the Cyrus Vance Jr., his predecessor, was working on against Trump himself, and they went to a lot of lengths to get, it went all the way to the Supreme Court to get hold of Trump's records from Deutsche Bank through his accountant's bazaars. And so that was a big achievement. But we don't know what was in those documents because the, the case got dropped. And the two federal prosecutors working on the case, who were very seasoned, resigned in February in protest. I've heard from a considerably reliable source that the Trump people basically blackmail Alvin Bragg, threatening to expose an affair he had or something to his wife, and whether that's true or not, 
but what explains it that he he's had something of a victory here in one case, but he dropped the other case. Although, according to the Washington Post, Bragg claims he main, he's maintaining the investigation into Trump. Yes, I think that's right. Well, so you you are identifying what I think right now is the favorite single topic of conversation among New York lawyers in the cocktail hour uh, is is asking what happened to Bragg, what caused him to make the decisions that he made, uh, what is he doing going uh, going forward, and I'd say there's an awful lot of chatter about it. Uh, there's an awful lot of suspicion of nefarious dealings involving Bragg and his predecessor, but I've never heard anyone uh, advance uh, anything that rises to the level of, um, you know, clear evidence or facts of something untoward happening. And of course, the two prosecutors who dropped out uh, told the media um, that Bragg's uh, view was that the evidence simply wasn't strong and clear enough to justify charges. Now, in cases of this sort, which are heavily based on uh, financial documentation, that's pretty much usually the case that, you know, there's not something shocking, not something that's like a smoking gun. It's just you've got lots of documents that you line up and you build a case uh, based on that. And, uh, you know, and I have heard and I think we hear regularly from people in the district attorney's office that this suggestion that the case against Trump is over is false. The case is perhaps not actively being progressed right now, but they're waiting to see how a number of other matters wind up and if other evidence doesn't emerge that allows this to be raised to a higher level and progressed. And that would include specifically Letitia James, the New York Attorney General's investigation and her depositions. You can count on it that any evidence she gets, any um, any witness statements, uh, any deposition she takes, all this is being shared with the district attorney. Um, and, you know, possible at some point, something will come down the pike that changes his mind, that the evidence is strong. Uh, but we just don't know. And of course, Trump recently appeared in a civil case deposition with the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, at which Trump pleaded the Fifth Amendment 440 times and only once answered a question, which was about his name. So obviously, a lot of the focus now is on the FBI seizure of, of documents at, at Mar-a-Lago. I wouldn't mind transgressing a little asking you about that because we, in our previous interview on today's program with Marcy Wheeler, who was in uh, Ireland, we did it a little earlier, and that was just as the judge announced his decision, which has to be a real blow to the, to the DOJ because I was frankly surprised that uh, Judge Reinhardt, who himself has been threatened with death threats by Trump supporters, and he's a former federal prosecutor. I believe he was actually appointed by Trump, but nevertheless, he's given Trump a chance because Trump wants these affidavit unsealed because he wants to expo find out what the case against him is, and he also wants to find out who the witnesses are against him. So that's clearly what's going on, but in an affidavit, 
in an affidavit, you always put the best case forward, don't you? You try and convince the judge that we need a search warrant because of, and then you give the best shot you have of what the best evidence you have against this person. So it's very likely that this affidavit is explosive. Well, they they describe that as a game plan. But I I just caution you a second because uh, I just got uh, a a detailed briefing on uh, Judge Reinhardt's decision. And his decision was not as it was widely reported in the media in the first few minutes uh, after the hearing. So what he said essentially was he directed the um, DOJ to prepare a redacted version of the affidavit. And he said he would reserve his decision on whether to order its release until he'd had a chance to review it. So I think he's really not over the final hurdle of whether to whether to do that or not. Uh, and I, the sense I get is that his decision is going to turn on um, what is this redacted um, affidavit like? I mean, is it is it so redacted that you can't make any sense of it and it only adds to confusion instead of clarification? If that's the case, he may well rule against its release. So I, I think uh, I think he's reserved the decision and we're probably not going to hear it until this redacted affidavit has been submitted and he's reviewed it. So but, you don't think it's the blow that a lot of legal analysts initially, of course, have said because obviously... No, I, no, in fact, I, in fact, the 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 the, uh, the people I've talked to in Southern Florida say tell me that those media reports didn't understand what the judges was saying and and uh, and uh, misreported it. So I think there's still a chance that that will happen, but I don't think he's crossed that bridge and made that decision yet. We'll see. But you know, frankly, to me, um, had he just ordered disclosure of it, even of a redacted version, that would be very surprising. Um, and I read the uh, DOJ's affidavit. I also read the motion papers that were filed by uh, many of the media organizations. There were so many of them, it was sort of hard to read them all. Uh, I had, I've generally taken the position in cases like this that the government should uh, make a lot of information available more than it usually does. Uh, but I have to say, in this case, I was quite persuaded by the arguments that DOJ made uh, and in particular, they cite in their papers the attack on the FBI field office in Cincinnati, um, the rise of extremely violent rhetoric targeting FBI agents. They say that individuals who provided information in the affidavit almost certainly would be physically targeted. I think that's correct. Um, and I think that, that presents a, an unusually strong case in opposition to disclosure. Well, the DOJ official who made the case before the judge is Jay Bratt, the chief of the Justice Department's counterintelligence and export control section. He's the same DOJ official that went down to Mar-a-Lago on June the 3rd with three FBI agents where Trump assured him that uh, everything was great. And Trump's lawyer signed a written statement claiming that all the material marked as classified had been returned to the government. And he's, uh, being a a counterintelligence officer, he's got to know a lot about Trump uh, because that's where all the smoking guns are in the counterintelligence files. Uh, And this situation in Mar-a-Lago has got to be a complete counterintelligence nightmare. Apparently they've got 60 days of the Trump CCTV video of, of who was going in and out 
of the storage room, and it's incredibly alarming how many people were wandering in and out of that place. So, in other words, everything that's in there could actually be completely damaging to U.S. national security, and they're just going to have to throw out whatever it is. We don't even know what it is, but whatever the programs are could cost the taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars if, if they can't guarantee that it hasn't been exposed to a foreign source. Well, I, I can break a little bit of news for you right now. So I have learned that uh, there is a pending FBI counterintelligence investigation uh, targeting a nest of Russian agents or spies uh, who have been operating uh, in the South Florida area in and out of Mar-a-Lago, uh, making many visits to Mar-a-Lago and interacting with Trump members of his family, uh, and other visiting uh, high-profile Republicans uh, over the course of the last six months. My God, that is amazing. We have to obviously follow up on that. That confirms all of my suspicions about how the Russians own this guy. And uh, I've even suggested that if it comes to the crunch, the Russians have a Gulfstream jet standing by in Florida to whisk him off to to uh, Cuba. So sounds like the trader-in-chief has really, really shown his true colors. So, yeah, I, so I have no information whatsoever suggesting that they got access to or obtained any of these documents uh, or anything of that sort. But I would just say for the, um, you know, following the retrieval of the documents, it's standard procedure that the FBI would now be uh, engaged in, uh, in interviews to discover uh, who had access to these documents. That's what they would do to, uh, to assess the right. extent of damage to national security resulting from the leak. Right, but, uh, but uh, I've got to wrap it up, now, uh, Scott, but you know, the, the Russians weren't in there to look at the decor and the gold chandeliers, I mean, surely. So, I, I think they I think the FBI has to be extremely concerned about these things in tandem. And that could well have been one of the things that uh, accelerated a little bit this process of getting the documents back. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great pleasure to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into outrageous threats to IRS personnel coming from GOP Senators Cruz and Grassley. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Casey Michelle, who's a journalist who's writing on offshoring, kleptocracy, and financial secrecy. He's appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic, and Politico magazine, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative 
and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation and others. He's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at CNN, First Republicans Attack the FBI, Look Who They're Coming For Now. Welcome to Background Briefing, Casey Michelle. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, obviously, Trump and uh, his followers have made outrageous statements about the FBI and threats to the FBI. And there's, there was an incident in Cincinnati last week in which a Trump follower attacked an FBI field office, tried to break through the bulletproof guard with a nail gun and was carrying an, an AR-15, got into a shootout with the local Ohio State Police and ended up being cornered in a cornfield and shot. So that's just one incident. Uh, we know that Breitbart, that Trump leaked the unredacted search warrant to Breitbart, revealing the names of the FBI agents involved and their families, and they're apparently under protection now. So the war on the FBI is pretty manifest, but you're uncovering, or at least pointing us towards another war that's going on, a war against the IRS. So what do they think they're doing? Are they, do they really think that the average American hates the IRS? Uh, they would, uh, I think they would certainly hope so, hope that the average American would hate the uh, the IRS. And certainly some of the rhetoric we've seen, uh, certainly from Republicans, uh, especially high-profile Republicans over the past few years and even the past few months regarding the IRS, certainly indicates that they want to lump them in, lump the IRS in with uh, other organizations, other agencies like the FBI that are, again, uh, patriotic Americans that are just trying to do their job and uphold the rule of law. I mean, I think, Ian, the the real collapse, the, the kind of the strangling of the IRS by congressional Republicans, most especially when Trump was in the White House, the the, the destruction of the IRS over the past decade, especially, it's, it's been one of these kind of stories that, that just it doesn't generate a lot of headlines. It's not the, the sexiest story in the world, but it really goes a long, long way to explaining so much of modern America, modern American political discourse, and especially things like spiraling wealth inequality uh, that give rise to figures, obviously, like Donald Trump in the first place. Now, I know we're going to talk about what's happening with the IRS right now, but that's kind of the background. The IRS has just been gutted by Republicans over the past decade. And if their rhetoric is anything to go by, they'd like to continue that gutting for years to come. Well, your article at CNN, Casey Michelle, that first Republicans attacked the FBI, look who they're coming for now, points out that the IRS audit rates have plummeted, especially for wealthy Americans. The GA reported that audit rates decreased the most for taxpayers with incomes of 200000 or more. The New York Times reported that audits rates on millionaires dropped by over 60% since 2010, and that Donald Trump's administration represented less than 10% of the audits that actually still take place. And while individuals in the top percentile of total wealth once made up nearly one-third of all total audits during then-President Trump's administration, they represented less than 10% of the audits that actually still take place. So clearly these Republican policies have been good for the billionaires and the millionaires, and they've helped accelerate the growing income gap and divide between average Americans and and the 1% of the 1%. 
So can you make the case that these Republican senators like Ted Cruz and Chuck Grassley that are making outrageous claims about the IRS and this new money in the Inflation Reduction Act, are they really shilling for the billionaires? I mean, is that what it comes down to? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, unfortunately, Ian, that certainly seems to be what uh, would be indicating why they are putting out the kind of rhetoric that they are putting out. You know, again, fear-mongering, scaremongering that tens of thousands, uh, you know, in their estimate, 87,000 new IRS agents are going to be going around, as Ted Cruz described them, in a new shadow army, uh, which is certainly a uh, striking uh, uh, image of, uh, you know, certainly what he wants his listeners to take away from this. But that's, you know, again, far, far, far from the truth, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, from what's actually going to be happening. I know, Ian, you, you just mentioned a few statistics a moment ago that really highlight how, especially in the last 10, 12, 15 years, most especially perhaps since the election of uh, uh, Barack Obama in 2008 and then the uh, congressional sweep on the Republican side in 2010, how that has really led to the gutting again of the IRS. Audit rates have collapsed. Tax evasion has exploded. And especially if you are a billionaire or a high net worth individual in the U.S., it has been an absolute field day for you. You haven't had to worry whatsoever about any auditors, any examinations, let alone any kind of criminal referral coming your way. I mean, the most recent estimate says that the wealthiest Americans, again, the, the kind of the top percentile of Americans have uh, dodged or, to use another term, evaded something like 150 or 160 billion dollars over the past decade. And again, that's only over the past decade. That's projected to grow into the trillions by the end of the next decade. That's money that should be going to American programs, to American services, to federal coffers to help provide funding for whatever it is that we, again, democratically decide upon for the good of the American people. That's money that should be going to the American people, but isn't. You know, I think the, the most striking statistic for me on, on my Indian is that the IRS now has fewer auditors than any time since the Second World War. I mean, it is just a remarkable collapse. And again, all of that due to budget cuts pushed by congressional Republicans over the past 10, 12, 15 years. Um, you know, Ian, again, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to gut in order to allow the ultra high net worth individuals that that uh, uh, vote and fund predominantly Republican officials to allow them free reign to do whatever they want with their finance without any kind of Democratic check or control over them. And again, I'm speaking with Casey Michelle, a journalist who's writing on offshoring, kleptocracy, and financial secrets. He's have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Fox, The New Republic, and Politico Magazine, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at CNN, First Republicans Attack the FBI, Look who they're coming for now. Well, just to follow up on what you mentioned about uh, Ted Cruz's rhetoric, he said the Irish shadow army is coming to hunt you down and take your money. And then Senator Chuck Grassley on Fox and Friends last week said that IRS workers armed with assault rifles would be deployed against taxpayers. And he talked about 87,000 of the supposed army of agents. And just to quote Grassley, are they going to have a strike force that goes in with AK-15s already loaded, ready to shoot some small business person in Iowa? 
with 87,000 additional employees, you can imagine what that harassment's going to be to the middle-class Americans and our small business people. Well, of course, they talk about middle-class Americans and small businesses, so these shills for the billionaires care one bit about the average Americans that they represent. I mean, we do have a money-driven political system, and, and the Supreme Court has created a situation where he who has the most money has the most political influence in this country. That's what Citizens United has done. So isn't it reasonable to deduce that these guys like Grassley and Ted Cruz are in effect working for, as I mentioned earlier, shilling for the billionaires? It's just as clear as day to me. It is, Ian, the billionaires that have benefited the most from the strangulation of the IRS. It is the billionaires that have benefited most from the creation, the explosion uh, of the financial secrecy vehicles that we know, uh, for instance, foreign kleptocrats have taken full advantage of for the past few years. It is the billionaires that have profited time and time and time again from the lack of transparency, from the lack of enforcement, uh, and then beyond that, the disintegration of the IRS as we know it over the past 10 or 12 years. And again, it is no surprise that it is the billionaires who are howling and wailing the most against, you know, via these mouthpieces in Congress about the new funding that is going to be going to the IRS. And again, just to back up a second, because of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which again has all kinds of provisions for uh, health care, for uh, climate, uh, you know, again, what we're talking about today, what I wrote about is a new $80 billion injection over the next decade to the IRS, which is really in many ways an unprecedented injection of finance to this agency, which has been, as I mentioned earlier, absolutely gutted over the past decade. It will really resuscitate the agency, actually give it some uh, some teeth to enforce the tax laws as we currently have them and go after those wealthiest tax cheats that have had an absolute field day over the past decade uh, dodging taxes, uh, 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 avoiding any kind of criminal prosecution whatsoever. Uh, you know that funding for the IRS is going to go toward new agents. It's going to go toward new infrastructure. It's going to go toward updating uh, some of the uh, actual computers and programming that the IRS has used for the last, uh, in some cases, that they haven't updated since the 1960s. I mean, again, it is really striking just what a shell of the agency. Uh, it now is just what a shell the IRS now is that all of this funding is going to go toward rehabilitating, resuscitating, and you know the benefit, you know, the beneficiaries at the end of the day are the American people that have watched this billionaire class skirt around American taxation laws, skirt around any kind of criminal po- prosecution. Because on the other hand, the IRS has been absolutely demolished by congressional Republicans over the last decade. Well. The Republicans have did the same with the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Bureau, at the behest of the NRA. They have denied them funds for computers, etc. So the ATF have to work on 3x5 cards, I mean, back in the 1930s, basically, in terms of technology. So what I understand is a lot of this $80 billion, a lot of it will go, of course, to hiring new auditors uh, for the IRS. But isn't the money going to go for computer systems that that have been denied them for the longest time so that they're up to date. I mean, yeah. Obviously, billionaires have legions of, it's called the wealth protection industry. They have legions of uh, lawyers and accountants uh, using, uh, obviously, high-tech equipment. So isn't that what it is? It's about at least bringing the IRS up 
to sp speed in the digital age? Yeah, this is why it's so ridiculous to see these claims from Cruz and Grassley about 87,000 armed uh, uh, agents knocking on the doors of mom and pop shops when that is absolutely not what it's going to be. There will be some new agents, which is absolutely needed, some new auditors, which is absolutely needed. But as you just mentioned, Ian, it's going to be tens of billions of dollars going not toward rifle-toting IRS agents, but going toward computers, going toward programming, going toward, again, that basic infrastructure of how an agency can operate successfully in order for all of these, again, wealthiest Americans who've been dodging taxes for years and years to pay their fair share as we, again, have in a democratic polity in the United States of America. There are specific taxation rates they have to meet. There are specific uh, uh, elements of taxation policy they have to follow, and that because of the gutted IRS over the past decade, they've been able to effectively ignore using uh, as you just mentioned, Ian, this kind of wealth protection class, wealth defense industry of accountants and of lawyers that have steered them uh, uh, directly around what few IRS oversight uh, or what little IRS oversight actually remains. I mean, and again, this is a breath of fresh air. This is new life. This is an effective resuscitation of the IRS as we know it so they can finally begin actually doing their job for the American people. So... Casey, is there any polling on what the real attitudes are for Americans about the IRS? As you've mentioned in the article, Grover Norquist, the anti-tax activist uh, who's funded by big business and big corporations, I might add, uh, talked about starving the government of money so you could drown it in a bathtub. But, I mean, we know people like Ron Lauder, the heir to Estee Lauder, the cosmetics fortune, He's obsessed with not paying taxes. He's proud of the fact that he finds up all kinds of tax dodges to hold onto the inherited wealth uh, that he has. So the, you have those kind of people. And I used to work with the movie actor Paul Newman on, on nuclear arms disarmament issues. You know, he was proud to, and pleased to pay taxes. He felt he was a privileged and successful American who uh, was, you know, financially rewarded, and he had mm -hmm. a very successful company, uh, Newman's Own, that you can see all their products in every supermarket. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a non-profit, by the way. Did, the money didn't go into his pockets; it went goes to charity. So he, there's a contrast between mm -hmm. the Paul Newmans of the world and the Ron Lauders. Yeah. So what's the polling on this? Yeah, uh, Ian, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be frank. I'm not familiar with any polling as it pertains to the popularity of the IRS, certainly in the last few years alone. But I can certainly say that it's only grown in popularity uh, over the past few years as the salience, as the reality, the relationship between the gutting of the IRS and spiraling wealth inequality has become as clear as day. We've seen some phenomenal reporting uh, on the IRS. We have seen some phenomenal research, uh, both uh, uh, on the scholarly side as well as from uh, civil society. Again, highlighting that relationship, which is you know, to pull back a second, not surprising. I mean, this is a very logical outcome of what would happen if the agency tasked, uh, tasked with overseeing tax policy, with overseeing the actual enforcement of tax law. If that is gutted, if that declines, if that is absolutely shredded, as it has been over the past 10 years, it will only follow that the wealthiest class, again, using their wealth protection racket, using their wealth defense industry uh, of lawyers and accountants, would have a field day of offshoring as much wealth as possible, hiding and evading, uh, hiding as much wealth as possible, and evading as many actual taxes as they owe as possible. I mean, you know, I think I think it's it's great that you mentioned Paul Newman because he was at the end of the day a patriotic American. He paid 
his fair share. Not only did he pay his fair share, he went about creating incredible industry underneath him while also making sure to follow the letter of the law and not hire uh, squadrons of lawyers and accountants to evade uh, paying his fair share. He was absolutely a patriotic American, and I think he stands in very clear contradistinction to some of those figures that you just mentioned, some of those wealthiest Americans that have spent years doing nothing more than dodging the taxes that they owe to the American populace, and in so doing, uh, shriveling up the budgets for any number of governmental programs that are supposed to be helping the American populace around the country. Well, just in closing, um, in the debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, she mentioned that Trump doesn't pay taxes. And Trump, instead of apologizing to the American people who paid their fair share while he gets away with paying nothing, Trump said, oh, that just makes me smart. Now there's a little bit of payback with uh, Weisselberg now pled guilty in the New York tax fraud case. And He's going to apparently testify against the Trump organization in a future trial. Whether or not he'll testify against Trump, I'm not sure. But is there any sense of, a, of some justice here? Because Trump has prided himself on never paying taxes. He inflates the value of his assets in order to get bank loans and, and then deflates his assets in order to avoid taxes. You know, Ian, that's a, a great question. I don't know that we'll ever see anything approaching any kind of justice as it pertains to Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and all the, at the bare minimum, financial shenanigans they have engaged in over the past few decades. What, what I can say is that it does feel, in a very real sense, not least because of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, it does feel like the tide is turning and that years and decades of arguments about why, for instance, the IRS should be gutted or why, frankly, other agencies tasked with overseeing rule of law in the United States of America, including things like financial transparency, um, you know, should be uh, uh, should be ignored, should be dissolved. It, it feels like we are kind of on the cusp of a new era of increased funding for the kind of necessary governmental oversight of these financial transactions, of these financial flows. I mean, this is a broader conversation. You, and I, you, you and I have talked in the past about how the US provides all these financial secrecy services, all these offshoring services to foreign oligarchs, foreign regimes, foreign dictators, and how that affects things like national security in the United States of America. And we've seen that begin to change over the last one, two, three years, especially under the Biden administration. And again, I don't think it's necessarily surprising that we're also seeing things change as it pertains to IRS funding. I wouldn't be surprised if, Ian, you and I speak again in a few years. And it is very clear that in many ways, in many areas, the Trump era, the Trump administration was really a bottoming out or kind of a, a close to trends that have been years in the making. And with the Biden administration, what we've seen over the last year or two, the beginnings of a new trajectory where you do see new funding, new oversight, new regulatory enforcement to begin ushering in a brand new era that will finally end all of this offshore finance that Trump, the Trump organization and all those in Trump circle have taken full and, as you said, prideful exam uh, uh, advantage of over the past few years. I, I, I hope we see a resurgence, and I do expect to see a resurgence of the kind of Paul Newman type figures that take pride in paying their taxes, take pride in being a taxpaying American. 
Well, Casey, Michelle, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Casey Michelle, who's a journalist whose writings on offshoring kleptocracy and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Fox, The New Republic, and Politico magazine, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council of the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative, and he's contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of American American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at CNN, First Republicans Attack the FBI, Look Who They're Coming For Now. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappear.